Well, good morning, everybody. I love getting to come to West Fort Worth, and uh, this time as a treat, I brought Jamie with me, and so after we're dismissed, I hope you'll come by and say hi to us. If you haven't met her, you're in for a treat. And by the way, she just got back from a Let's Start Talking trip in Croatia, and she can tell you how awesome that is. So if you're thinking about it, uh, ask Jamie about Let's Start Talking. She's done it a couple of times, and I hope you'll consider going to the uh, meeting next week because we're wanting everyone in our church to be on mission, and we want everyone to do some mission work while they're a part of our church, and that's a wonderful way to do it. And then I hope that some of you will make the trip to our campus at North Richland Hills for worship night and for story night. Some of you have never been on the North Richland Hills campus, and I think you'll enjoy the time there. Uh, it's all for harvest season because in two weeks... We're going to have a special contribution at every service of every campus, and we're going to raise almost $2 million, and it's to fund the mission works across the country and across the world. We support 22 missionaries around the world, and that takes a lot of money, including all the other things that we do. Go to the Harvest website, uh, read the blogs, learn who these people are that we're helping, and you will be blessed, because I really do believe that when Jesus said, go into all the world, either we go personally or we help those who can. And so that's coming up. It's one of the reasons why I've chosen to preach through the book of Jonah. Because I want our church to wrestle for a few weeks before Harvest Weekend with God's heart for the world. So you might be opening to Jonah chapter 3. We'll be there in just a moment. So, Long before the internet or cell phones, I got into the habit every week of calling my mother. Now, when I was in college, I would call collect. I stopped that after I got a job. But this went on for years, and I loved our Saturday morning visits. And then about seven years ago, my mother passed away. And I made the decision I would start calling my father. Now, my father's not the conversationalist my mother was, and for a little while it was awkward. But we have developed a rhythm. And so now every Saturday morning, we have this great visit together, father and son. And I was particularly eager to call him last Saturday because it was his birthday. And so I called. My dad answered. And I said, hey, Dad, how does it feel to be 82? He said, well, I wouldn't know because I'm 83. And I said, no, Dad, you are 82. He chuckled and said, well. I don't think so, because I've been 82 all the last year. So I dropped it. We had our visit for a long time. And then before I hung up the phone, I said, okay, Dad, when you hang up, I want you to do the math. You were born on October the 18th, 1932. Today is October the 18th, 2014. I'm quite sure that today you are 82. And he paused a moment, and then he said, well, I'm glad, because I didn't want to turn 83. (laughs) I would suggest that life can be summarized as a series of turns, either turns made or not made, turns good, turns bad. My life definitely turned in a better direction when I started dating Jamie Lida of San Antonio. We talk about how people turn their life around, but we also say he turned to a life of crime or he turned to drugs. Your life, in many ways, can be summed up by the turns you made or didn't make, the turns that were good, the turns that weren't so good. You see, the book of Jonah is a story full 
of twists and turns. And it makes us wrestle with the question, is his heart ever going to turn so as to be swallowed by the will of a great God? And that's why the story returns to where it started. Because it started with God's call for Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. And Jonah did not want to be a blessing to the enemies of Israel. And so he basically said, God, I just can't go there. And he went the other direction. And you remember God intervened with a storm and sailors and the whole business of being thrown overboard. And Jonah is swallowed by a fish where he prays to God. And God hears his prayer and decides to give Jonah a second chance. And the fish spits Jonah up. And the story has returned to where it started. Because look how chapter 3 starts. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, I love this, a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Because here's the thing about God. He's always going to take you back to the place where you said no to him. Because God doesn't do relationships where there are irreconcilable differences. Now, we do. Sometimes we'll say to somebody, you know, we'll just have to agree to disagree. God doesn't do that. Because here's the thing. If you disagree with God, he's right and you're wrong. And God's got to get that fixed before we go forward. So God takes Jonah back to the place where Jonah said no. And once again, God said, go. He will not turn Jonah loose of the mission to go to Nineveh to call the people to turn loose of all their wickedness. And so, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, that's not much of a sermon. I know something about writing sermons. It did not take him very long to write that sermon. It's just five words in Hebrews. Forty days, you're going down. That was the sermon. He didn't preach it with love. He didn't preach it with concern. He didn't pray about it before he preached it. And what happened next is the biggest miracle in the book. Oh, we think swallowed by the fish is a big thing. What we're about to read is one of the biggest miracles In the whole Bible. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
Now, this is maybe the greatest revival in history. How do you explain it? It was prompted by a belligerent prophet who wasn't praying for it and didn't want it to happen. Now, maybe part of the answer is that Jonah's experience in the fish could have preceded him. Perhaps people in Nineveh heard about it before he got there. Maybe he showed up and in his own body, he bore the marks of time in the fish. I don't know about you, but if say I'm on a beach and I watch a big fish swim up and spit a man out. And his skin is bleached white and he's lost all his hair and he's got scars all over his body. And he says, repent, I probably would. Because Jonah is living proof of God's capacity to deal with rebellion. But notice, the text doesn't say, so they believed Jonah. It says, they believed God. The God of Israel. The God they've never listened to before. And when he said, you've got 40 days and then this city is history. They interpreted 40 days as maybe there's a chance. Maybe we can turn this thing around. And so a revival broke out. It started in the street and it reached all the way up to the throne room. And the king issued an edict. And I don't know if you noticed, but in this edict, he intuitively told the people to do everything God said Israel needed to do to have a revival. When they dedicated the temple, God said to Solomon, now they will come in the future when your people will turn away. But here's what. If they will humble themselves and turn and seek my face, if they'll pray and they'll turn from their evil ways, I will hear their prayer and I'll heal their land. And that's what Nineveh did, all three things. They humbled themselves. That's what the sackcloth means. Sackcloth was a really scratchy material that you would put on. It was very uncomfortable as a sign that what I'm feeling on the outside, I'm feeling on the inside. It was internationally recognized as a way to humble yourself. They humbled themselves and they prayed and they sought the face of the God of Israel. And they turned from their wicked ways. And it says that God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways. Because you see, turning is observable. Turning is more than some vague change of the heart. Turning involves concrete changes in the practices of your life. Uh, Paul, for example, when he's preaching to King Agrippa, says, here's the message I would tell the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and they should turn to God. And they should demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Okay, I'm about to say a strong word. And somebody here today needs to hear it. If your walk with God is not visibly changing, some things about your life, then you're not walking with God. You're walking by yourself and you just have occasional thoughts about God. Because when you turn your life to God, it becomes visible. Genuine repentance reflects on the outside what is going on on the inside. And God saw that. 
he saw that Nineveh did return to God. And I use the word return because the Hebrew word for turn is also the same word for return. That's because biblically repentance or turning is both. Repentance is turning away from the life God did not create you for and turning to or returning to the life you were always meant to have. Now, this is central to the way Jesus would preach the gospel. Whenever Jesus, it says, went about preaching good news, he always used two words. He used the word repent or turn, and he used the word kingdom. Like in Matthew 4, verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What Jesus is doing is saying, That the good news isn't just salvation. The good news is sovereignty. The good news is the life you were made for, where you live under the gracious rule of God, is available to you. But to enter it, you've got to turn away from those places in your life where you have been on the throne. Did you notice the king of Nineveh, he got off his throne and he got down in the dust. And you have to do the same thing, to repent. You have to turn away from the parts of your life where you rule. And you have to turn that over to God. So you sports fans will recognize this picture. The short man was named John Wooden, greatest basketball coach of all time. The tall man was Bill Walton, three-time All-American. They won three national championships together. Now, Walton was a uh, product of the uh, flower child hippie movement. He was a bit of a rebel. Uh, Wooden was a very conservative, straight-laced figure. So they had some clashes. And Wooden had this rule, no facial hair. So after a 10-day break, Bill Walton comes back with a beard. And Coach Wooden says, Bill, have you forgotten something? And Bill Walton said, Coach, if you mean my beard, I think it is my right to have one. And Coach Wooden says, do you really feel that way, Bill? And Bill said, I really do. And Coach Wooden said, well, Bill, I really respect people of deep conviction who are willing to stand up for what they believe. And you just need to know the team is really going to miss you. (laughs) And within 10 minutes, Bill Walton had shaved his beard because he understood if I'm going to live under the realm of the authority of Coach Wooden, I have to give up. Those places where I wanted to rule. That's repentance. And it's the greatest miracle. Nineveh turned. That's the part of the book of Jonah that ought to make your jaw drop. A godless city returned to God. But they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know. And neither does Jonah. The king says, who knows? Maybe God will turn. Now, that raises an interesting theological question. If God cannot change, he's unchangeable God, then how can he change his mind? How can he turn? 
The King James Version really gets it complicated because that version says, So God repented of the evil he had planned to do. Now, what are we to make of this? Let's put on our thinking caps for a second. Let's learn something about the Lord. How can the God who never changes, change his mind? How do you explain that kind of turnover? Well, I'm going to give you three thoughts. Here's the first. The first thing we've got to understand, anytime the Bible tries to help us understand God, the Bible has to use accommodating language. We are finite creatures trying to understand the infinite. All you parents have tried to explain a reality to your little children. And you had to use words that were inadequate to fully explain that reality because their minds were too small to grasp the reality. The Bible has to do the same thing. That's why the Bible uses anthropomorphic language like the hands of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. God doesn't have hands or an arm. The Bible is simply trying to put in ways that we can grasp some truths about God. So that's part of what's going on. The Bible is trying to help us understand something that is deep and mysterious. Here's the second thing. God doesn't change. And that includes His revealed will to be gracious when people do change. Look what He said in Jeremiah 18. If I threaten to uproot and shatter an evil nation, and that nation turns from its evil, I will change my mind. See, God doesn't change. So God will always turn against unrepentant sin. And God will always turn toward repentant sinners. But here is what I think is the truest and hardest thing to explain. God is more concerned about being compassionate than He is about your perception of His consistency. I don't know if that made sense, but do you remember the story where Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like this man who needed to get a harvest in, so he paid some guys. He said, here's how much I'll pay you if you go work all day. Well, about halfway through, he found some other guys. Well, you go work too. An hour before the sun goes down, he says to some guys, you go work too. Well, it came time to pay them. He paid them all the same. And some of the people that had worked all day grumbled and said, that's not fair. You're not consistent. And the owner said, oh, I'm totally consistent. Because I'm gracious and I do as I please with my goodness. And this is God. God is so gracious to people. It doesn't always seem to us like he's being consistent. And God says, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not always seeming consistent to you. Because being merciful is more important to me. So I heard about an atheist that challenged a believer and said, There's no such thing as a God, and I'll prove it. And he looked up to the sky and said, If there's a God, you have five minutes to strike me dead. And five minutes later, he turned to the believer and said, See, I have proven there's no God. And the believer said, No, the only thing you've proven is that God is gracious. And God is so gracious to sinners. And that will never change. But they might. 
You see, in a sense, God did overturn Nineveh. Because the Nineveh that he said he would destroy didn't exist anymore. It was a new city. And so while the perceived change was in God, the real change was in Nineveh. It's like um, you're walking against a strong wind. If you're a golfer, let's say it's a three or four club wind, okay? It's a, it's a strong wind, okay? You're walking against it. You have this experience of this opposition, and then you turn around and you walk with the wind. And you have a completely different experience. The wind didn't change. You did. And when you turn and you walk with God instead of against God, it feels different. Like God changed. Oh no, God's character was consistent. You changed and experienced Him in a new way. You see, the grace of God will turn your world around. And that's why God gives us 40 days. God is so desirous that we all return to the life we were made for. And so He gives us time. It explains why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Second Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow to do what He's promised, as some think. Instead, He's patient with you. Because He does not want anyone... To be destroyed. But he wants all to turn away from their sins. See, God believes in the possibility of turning. And let me just say right now, some of us have people in our lives or places in our lives where we think, well, let's just wipe them off. But God believes it's possible for anybody to turn. He's that gracious. And he gives us time. And this story is asking you and me to turn our hearts to the world that needs to return to God. So, here's a couple of uh, takeaways for us. You know, one of the comments I've gotten a lot on this series is, man, I didn't know there was so much in the book of Jonah. Well, it is, isn't there? In fact, I've preached this book several times, and, and I had a new insight this week that I've never had before. I'm going to share it with you right now. One of the turning points of this story is that it points to the power in the Word. The power of the message to turn hearts transcends the heart of the messenger. Did you notice that? Jonah's heart was not in what he preached. But that didn't keep the word of God from reaching the hearts that he preached to. You see, God's word is that powerful because it is alive. There is miracle power in the word of God. The power is in the word, not in the person that brings it. Hebrews chapter 4 says the word of God is alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between the soul and the spirit, between the joint and the marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and our desires. I never cease to be amazed at how the light can get turned on in the presence of the word of God. Almost every single week after I preach, someone walks up and thanks me for the message and says, and this is how it applies to my life. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? 
How in the world did you get that application out of that message? It was never even on my radar. But this is the power of the word to penetrate and to apply. One of the best Bible teachers in America is named Liz Curtis Higgs. She spoke at our ladies' conference a couple of years ago. And she, she was a hellion. She was in the uh, radio industry. And she was into drugs. Very immoral person. A radical feminist. No faith in God. She was so wild, Howard Stern told her to calm down. So she goes to work in Louisville, Kentucky at a radio station, and a couple of friends there invite her to church. And the only reason she went was because they would give her food after. And she goes to Southeast Christian Church where my friend Bob Russell was preaching. Through Ephesians 5, that particular day, his text was on marriage and how husbands are the head of the wife. And her friends thought, oh, no, this is the worst day ever to bring her radical feminist to church. And Bob's up there preaching. The husband's the head of the wife. And this means that he leads the wife like Christ did. That means that he dies for his wife. He lays down his life. He sacrifices for his wife. And Liz turns to her friend and whispers, if I ever met a man that would die for me, I'd marry him in a heartbeat. And her friend, in Holy Spirit-anointed wisdom, replied, Lizzie, a man has already died for you. And that was the crack in the armor that brought Liz Curtis Higgs to Christ. It was a place in the Word you would have never picked to start sharing with her. But the Word of God is powerful. And it works miracles. Isn't it amazing? Nineveh's biggest obstacle to turning to God wasn't their sin. It was Jonah's refusal to take the word of God to Nineveh. Now listen to me. We've got this 2020 vision. I believe we're going to have a church of over 8,000 worshiping on the weekend by 2020. How are we going to get there? What's the big strategy? Are you ready for this? Bring people into the presence of the word. That's the strategy. Invite your friends to church. We ought to have every empty chair in here filled soon. Bring them to your small group. Get people in the presence of the miracle working word of God. And let God go to work on their heart. Because you don't save anybody. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's the thing about salvation. Salvation is not getting bad people to become good. It's about getting dead people to become alive. And only God can do that. And He can do that when we get people in the presence of His Spirit-anointed Word. And it's possible because of the greatest turn events ever. You see, I think this story turns and points to the power of of the cross. And you think, wait a second, there's no mention of the cross in this story. Listen, the whole Bible is about Jesus. He's on every page. How could God just forget all the evil that had been done in Nineveh? Now, repentance is important. Repentance means everything, but repentance earns nothing because repentance doesn't change unrighteousness. Into righteousness. No amount of turning around by Nineveh. Could turn away. The deserved judgment 
of God on their sins. And so why wasn't Nineveh destroyed? Because God took Nineveh's sin and he put it on Jesus. God doesn't turn away from sin and act like it never happened. But God turns and puts our sin on the cross. And when we turn to the cross and we confess our sin, God turns and takes the righteousness of Jesus and puts it on us. And that ought to turn your life around. In a way that people can't help but notice. And so I remember the great Christian author and apologist Charles Colson. Who had a powerful ministry in prisons. And he was several years ago in Brazil. Because he had heard about a prison there that about 20 years ago had been taken over by two Christians. And it was so unique in the way they approached things. They let the inmates have responsibility. They got Christian families to adopt the inmates. Both while they were in prison and then when they got out. And he said, I went to this prison and a man who was a murderer had the keys and let me in. And everywhere I went, I saw on the walls uh, verses from the Psalms and from the Proverbs. And everything was clean and people were smiling. And guards didn't have to walk around to protect me. And then they took me to a cell where people used to be tortured. And the man who was my guide said, now, do you sure you want to see this? There's only one man in there. And Charles Coulson said, I have seen the worst prison cells in the world. There's nothing you can show me that will shock me. Well, he was wrong. The guy opened the door, and inside was a beautifully carved crucifix. It was Jesus, the prisoner, hanging on a cross. And the guide said softly, he's doing time for the rest of us. And the world turns upside down when Christ is lifted up. Turning is always possible if you're willing to be swallowed by our great God. And so right now, somebody is listening to me that needs these next words. Repent then. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So, Father, I'm praying right now for turning. I'm praying for hearts to turn away from sin and in the direction of Jesus. I'm praying for minds and lies and satanic thoughts to be turned into truth. I'm praying, God. I'm praying for miracle. 
for the dead to be brought to life, for salvation to come. So, God, do what only you can do and bring revival. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'd like you all to stand up, please. I'd like you on every campus, if you're serving on a prayer team, a response team, to take your place. And as we worship the Lord together, this is your moment. Remember again, God does not overlook evil. God judges evil. We get to choose where. Will it be on the cross of Jesus? Oh, please let it be. Please turn to God while we worship Him.